Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, thedjburr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Welcome to another episode of Making an Addict. This is a special episode. Today, I am talking with Alan, and Alan just happens to be my partner. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, DJ. Thanks for having me on your show. (laughs) You're welcome. So for months, you have been listening to me go on and on about my podcast and my, you know, uh, my work and my writing and, and all the things. And I'm curious, how does it affect you to be in a relationship with someone who is an addict? Uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, I mean, I think it's okay, nothing difficult about it. Uh, you know, in a way, I grew up with addicts. Uh, we just didn't know they were addicts. Uh, other than my brother, we was an addict. Uh, I think my mom was an addict. Uh, she was addicted to pain medicine, a pharmaceutical, hmm. uh, that she was being prescribed by her doctor. Uh, so I've dealt with it. So I've had family members, and so uh, have a little idea of what it looks like. Okay, so when we started dating, I think I made it clear to you that I was in recovery. Um, I, I'm curious, and I'm sure our audience might be curious. How is that? How is it to hear that? You know, up front, really. Uh, well, you know, I was glad you were you disclosed it right up front, and uh, you know. I just looked at it as a, another part of the relationship that, uh, that I would have to work with and understand. Um, you know, I understand that you have um, friends that are in uh, the uh, different 12-step programs. And uh, at first it was a little nerve-wracking that, you know, you told me that you know, it wasn't appropriate to ask where you knew this person from because they may be from a 12-step program and they might become full well, and you know I understand the 12-step program and then the anonymity uh, portion of it uh, so um, that was a little bit of challenge for me at first uh, but I've gotten to the point where I understand yeah this is just somebody that's reaching out that needs some help yeah it's challenging on my it was challenging on my end too because most of the people in my life uh, who are very close to me are in recovery and they're present outside of the rooms too so like birthday functions you know holidays and things of that nature and so 
I think over time people were willing to share with you where they knew me from and I was I was a-okay with it so and I agree you know I as the relationship continued I got to meet these amazing people um, and they became more comfortable and got to know me uh, they did open up to me and you know allowed me into where they knew me from or where they knew you from and uh and that made it a little bit easier um you know it's just you know i mean there's certain things uh, that you know that i've done in the past uh, that are not big issues in my life and the things i had to step away from uh, and totally do it out of support and love hmm. well i'm grateful for the support I'm curious if you had a similar experience with your brother who you say was an, was an addict and then also your mom. Were they in recovery? Uh, my brother was not in recovery. Uh, his addiction ended up taking his life. Um, he was a middle child. And I, you know, I mean, he disclosed to me when I was younger, when we were younger, that, you know, his feelings about how dad felt about him. And uh, he just had a difficult time with that. And he got fell in with the wrong crowd. And uh, he learned to, as you say all the time, he learned to numb his hurt and pain. Yes, we do learn how to do it. With a uh, different, different substance. And... Uh, Unfortunately, he never got into recovery, hmm. uh, and uh, his mental health deteriorated, and uh, you know, ended up leading to him making a wrong choice. And uh, you know, he ended up at the end being paranoid schizophrenic, which I think is part. Uh, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, but in my opinion, it was a result of the abuse, uh, drug abuse that he had done to his brain over the years yeah um drugs can lead to psychosis you know drug abuse can yeah and you're the so you're this young kid and you're watching your older brother deteriorate right before you and i imagine that that had to have been scary for you it was hard you know uh you know i tried to reach out to him the best I could, especially when I was younger, you know, when I was, and uh, we were both living in Florida, and, uh, you know, I just tried to get him on the right path, and tried to, um, I pretty much begged him to, to, to change his life. Um, and he couldn't I, hear you. He couldn't hear me. Yeah. And did your family get into any kind of uh, support, either therapy or recovery, as a result of uh, your brother's uh, addiction? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, I, you know, after my death, my brother did die, I went and got some uh, therapy help. Um, we were, we were the closest. Right. Uh, my oldest brother's uh, almost nine years older than me, a month shy of being nine months, uh, nine years older than me, and Jay was six years older than me. So we were naturally the ones that were the closest. Uh, my brother, by the time I was approaching my teen years, my older brother was working all the time and going to school full time and uh, ended up moving out. So we didn't spend a lot of time together. Uh, so, you know, Jay took care of me, uh, especially during my parents' separation. 
he helped my mom look after me and so I uh, you know spend uh, a good fair amount of time with him sounds like there were some times where he was able to show up and be accountable you know perhaps uh, my mom ended up having to get me a, a babysitter for the weeks that she worked uh, the swing show um, because he couldn't show up and uh, unfortunately part of him taking care of me when he was during that period uh, I made many trips to the drug dealer house with me damn uh, you know he tried to get me smoking pot and it was just like um, I don't know I, it, I don't seem to be as perceptive as I was then <laughs> but, <laughs> you were a little kid <laughs> but as a little kid I there was something that told him there was a little voice in my head that said this is not a path that you want to take no that shit's scary yeah. I saw drugs, you know, when I was growing up. I saw, you know, people in my family doing drugs or using drugs or alcohol. And I always said I never, ever, ever wanted to be the one that was addicted to drugs or alcohol. And thankfully, I didn't get addicted to drugs, but um, I got addicted to alcohol and I got addicted to manipulating the, my own chemicals in my body. So a drug, you know, several drugs, you know, but they were in my body. I learned to manipulate them because I was in a lot of pain. So I understand pain and numbing, but I can also understand that, uh, that sense of fear or worry that you might have experienced growing up around your brother who was actively in his addiction. You know... For me, I saw it then with him, and uh, you know, I've always implemented in my own life. I've I've set rules around things that became, that can become addictive. Uh, alcohol, for instance, you know, I always had my three drink limit. Uh, that was you know that was always there because I was you know I saw my brother. You know, it was in back of my mind. I'm like, okay, maybe I need to be a little more careful what uh, what I do and and basically monitor myself hmm. and you know as a 20 year old we all do a little going crazy but in general I step to stuck to that rule well that sounds like some really good awareness and insight whereas I think some, a lot of people don't have that so I'm curious, do you think did, was that influenced by maybe something your parents said to you or uh, just by what you saw your brother going through and not wanting to wit go through it yourself? Uh, I think part of it was uh, what I was seeing with Jay and what was happening to him. Uh, and I think another part of it was that, you know, my stepmom's mother was an alcoholic and, and she talked about it a little bit. And, uh, and I think she influenced me a little bit in that area. So she gave you information you didn't have? Yeah. You know? Okay. So, you know, I think between what she had said to me, what I was seeing with my brother, uh, and the potential of anything being an addictive substance, uh, and that I knew I needed to control that. And you said your mom was, you think your mom was addicted. Um, can you say more? Uh, you know, I love my mom. Uh, it's been two and a half years now since she's been gone. Uh, she died of an accidental overdose of oxycontin and oxymorphine. Um, you know the th the thing about those two drugs is that 
and it hap- it's very common with elderly people that are on that kind of medication and they get forgetful uh, their brain yeah. is already aged and uh, then they're in pain and they take medicine and uh, they lose track of time and think that there's enough time that's gone by and then they take another dose and this pain's still there and then they take another dose when they're thinking time is passing and it's really not. Uh, you know, and I just think that over the years, um, all the medicine that she'd been prescribed for aches and pains, um, Western medicine had has been a little more liberal with prescribing those medications. Um, not the truth. Understanding the consequence of that, and then they're addressing it. And uh, yeah, they're they're attempting to they're trying to be a little more conservative. Right. Um, so you know, I think my mom was a um, a bipolar, so she had had mental health issues most of her life, and. Uh, I think uh, just over time, the different medicines and um, I think a lot of her pain was phantom pain. Uh, I mm. know, don't know a lot about it. Uh, I understand that sometimes uh, when you live with extreme pain for a while, um, even though the pain has gone away, your mind still remembers. Yeah, like you're always in pain. Correct. Yeah, so it's like she maybe wasn't able to discern whether she was in actual pain. Correct. Or maybe this phantom pain. Correct. God, that's uh, so, that sounds horrible. You know, and you know she had had non-Hutchinson lymphoma, and of course they had her own pain medicine for that, and then uh, she was just not able to wean herself off of that. Mm. Um, so fortunately, she got it. In my opinion, she got addicted to it, and unfortunately, yeah. it led to her passing. And she probably didn't have any awareness that she was addicted to it. I, I don't think she realized that she was. Yeah. Her provider should have, in my opinion, but, um, you know, can't go and, back and, and that, fix it. In that case, in the defense of the provider, uh, uh, the provider did try to cut her back and, uh, uh, they ended up having her go to a pain clinic and, uh, and I just don't, you know, they couldn't, couldn't get her off. Mm. She, she would not want, she did not want to be off of it. Uh, and to me, that's another indication that perhaps maybe she was addicted to it. Maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, it's sad that I, you know, I, I never got the opportunity to, to meet your mom. Um, but I know you speak highly of her. And I know that you love her and that uh, she loved you. I mean, our our home has pictures of her. And in that those pictures, there's love. And so that's an amazing experience to have because... A lot of us folks who struggle with addiction don't know that we're loved and don't have that experience. Or um, if we did have that experience, it was so long ago and in such a distant past that um, there's this void there. And when we start to think about what we lost or what was missing, we try to numb, right? And so that's why it's important. I try to make sure that I communicate to to my clients and to my audience here on this show and on my other show that uh, recovery is an option. And recovery is not just showing up to the rooms and reading out the big book, right? There's more out, even outside of the rooms. And you've been exposed to recovery, like a shit ton of recovery. Yes, yes. Can you talk about what that's like? Uh, you know, 
I see nothing but positive coming out of it. All right. You have an amazing group of friends that are all in recovery of one of the groups that you're in, uh, whichever one it may be. Uh, they show up. Uh, you have people that you can uh, send a message to when you're struggling with something particular, something that's triggered you. You can reach out and almost immediately get a response from somebody. And uh, I think it's amazing. I think it's something that that we all should have in all of our lives, regardless if we're in an addict or not. Yeah, I agree. I you know? totally agree. I mean, it reminds me of when I was growing up as a kid. You know, people just show up at your house unannounced and <laughs> your, your friends, your neighbors. And well, we live in Seattle. They have to get an invite here. Uh, apparently, so. <laughs> you don't show up in house here. That is true. No. Oh my uh, God, that was so hard for me to buy into coming from the south that I had to send an invitation to have people come visit because I I still when I go back to Georgia I you know we went and yeah. we just we just drove to someone's house and yeah. either they were there or they weren't precisely <laughs> that's kind of how I grew up in Indiana you know uh, that's how we did it you know I mean I can remember I still remember to this day um, it was like eight o'clock at night and somebody knocked on the door. And, you know, I go answer the door and, well, first of all, I looked out the window and I turned around on my parents and said, it's grandma and grandpa. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, grandma and grandpa were there. And, uh, of course, you know, I opened the door and let them in. Um, but, you know, I mean, grandma and grandpa lived in North Carolina. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, they, and they just didn't tell us they were coming. And they and, just showed up. Know, they just showed up. They were, were wow. coming for uh, a funeral of a family member to pass. Oh, my goodness. That's but, hilarious. You know, it was just, I mean, it was not uncommon. You know, my cousin, Gary, that lived in the same little town in Indiana we did, you know, he wouldn't even not. He'd just open the door and come in. Just, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom used to get so mad at him. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's, you know, what we grew up doing. And sometimes we did that, too, because we also had keys to everyone's house. So yeah. knocking really wasn't necessary, right? You Either the door was unlocked or you had a key. Yeah. So now when our friends do come over, and I say our friends because... My my friends from recovery, they have become our friends, and they show up for us in some really amazing ways. And okay. so I'm really thankful for the folks that do show up and participate, because participating in um, each other's lives is important to me, um, because that's what was missing for me growing up. Now, uh, you know... I'm involved in a lot of recovery, whether it's as a sponsor or as a sponsee or as a speaker somewhere or what have you. And I just want to let my audience know that Alan shows up to those things. You know, we go to potlucks and picnics and speaker meetings. And um, that's sometimes a struggle for couples uh, if one person is in recovery and the other person is not. What do you think helps you be able to to show up to those things that maybe you're not comfortable with maybe you don't understand it but you know it's important to me well i do it out of, of love for you because i know it's something that you, that you need which 
means that I need to um, show up for you and give you support in something that is vital and important in your life. And uh, so to me, you know, it's just part of loving a person and participating and, and being part of their life mm -hmm. uh, and being supportive. Uh, I can understand where uh, for some people that may be hard to show up and do that. Um, and it could be for some people it be, could be because they don't want to face the reality of choices they're making in their own life. Well, let me tell you, that's uh, that has been my experience. And when I was in my recovery dating and I've told you these stories but when I was in recovery dating with my dating plan um, and yes I do have a dating plan if you want to know more about that you can email me at dj.burr at ableseattle.com and I will be glad to send it to you but when I was using my plan uh, it included uh, you know a section of uh, you know that says being someone I want to date someone who's willing to show up for recovery and so what I would do is every month we have a speakers meeting in one of my fellowships I would invite people I was dating to those meetings now sometimes we stopped dating after the the meeting and that was good it was good that you know whatever was going on for them came up as a result of being exposed to my recovery and so that meant not a good fit had a totally different experience when you went and you've gone several times actually uh, i i know and the audience may want to know but i've asked you several <laughs> times for the last three months i know when we were going to go to speakers uh, meeting oh my god because, you know even though i am not an addict uh i always always walk away with something that i can implement in my own life but you know on saturdays we have our movie nights and we have potlucks here at the house and sometimes i don't want to get in the car and drive to the meeting uh but we do have one coming up this month and it is on my calendar so i think we're going to be going back for that because awesome. it is it is rewarding to to hear other people's experience strength and hope and I appreciate when people like bring their families or their partners there to hear their their stories too. And so, folks, if you've never been to a speakers meeting in your fellowship, you definitely put it on your calendar. It's a moving experience, and I have shared at those meetings, um, and it is life changing. It's it changes your recovery. It changes your perspective on recovery. So I highly recommend those too. So back to like recovery resources, you know, we're sitting in my home office right now and we're surrounded by recovery resources. I think our living room probably has recovery resources. Our bedroom has recovery resources. Uh, how does that affect you? Uh, it doesn't phase me at all, really. To be honest. Okay. Uh, it's, it's part of who you are. And, uh, you know, if I ever have a question about anything or, <laughs> you know, need to have an answer uh, i'm sure i can find it in some of this recovery information that we have around the house yeah you, you're in an interesting positions because you're not only in a relationship with someone who's in recovery and recovering from multiple addictions and who has years of sobriety but you're also in a relationship with a therapist correct what in the hell were you thinking <laughs> <laughs> 
cheap psychological therapy. No, he does not. <laughs> do not come after my license. I do not he provide. Not. I do not provide I, therapy at home to my partner. Uh, I agree. You <laughs> <laughs> but what is that like? Because people in your life know that I'm in recovery and also a therapist. I'm sure they must be curious. Uh, you know, I've gotten a few questions here and there. Um, the interesting thing uh, that has been a challenge in our relationship is uh, some of my friends who uh, like to indulge in uh, things that we choose to sustain from mm. uh, have been a little bit more absent in my life. Yeah, and that's hard because, I, you know, you should see your friends. Uh, I just don't. I don't like putting myself in an environment where there's going to be substances or like substances like alcohol because that's the big one, right? Because we live in America. Everyone, you know, in my opinion, in my opinion, has had alcohol at least once. But um, we use alcohol in social settings, and I just choose not to involve myself in that. And I understand, and that's great. Um, and my friends understand that. Uh, and I have tried to get them to come to our functions. Uh, they have come to a few, uh, and uh, hopefully they continue to come to a few. They're always welcome. And they're always welcome. I, and they, I believe they know that. Uh, I reach out to them all the time when we're having something. Uh, but I think uh, for them, it may be that uncomfortable feeling of having to look at their own behavior. And uh, I love them, and I support them, and whatever their choices would be, and I try to... Uh, make sure that I show up for them the best that I can. Yeah, yeah, I I I hear that and appreciate that, and I'm grateful that you you take time to assess whether or not you know an event might be a good fit for me and, and invite me to those events. And that's the thing, folks. We we invite each other to events that gives us an opportunity to assess whether or not we are available, whether that's physically available or emotionally available or if we're interested or you know what what have you we get to choose you know and that's what's different in this relationship because prior relationships it never felt like there was a choice um so i appreciate that and that's what i think helps us stay together as a functional relationship instead of a dysfunctional because it's we both know what dysfunction looks like yes Right. You know, you've been you've been telling us about your family history and my audience knows about my family history. Um, You know, they've they've read my book. They've they've heard the podcast, all these things, you know, it was crazy. And so we don't have like a good template of what a a healthy relationship looks like. So we end up spending our adult lives trying to figure that shit out. It's kind of interesting because that you mentioned that. you know, you know, I'm a huge fan uh, of the the secret. Oh yeah. And uh, the law of attraction, and uh, and you know, it, it says in the secret that you know a good eighty five percent of families are dysfunctional. So so what? Right. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, there, unfortunately, there is not a uh, a, a book for uh, of life and how to live life. No, there um, is not. You know, there's no manual. Babies don't come with manuals. Nope. And because we're each individually have our own DNA chromosomes, and we are so, so what works for me may not work for the next person. May what works for me may not work for you. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and I, and the thing is that we do all come from dysfunction, most of us. Yeah, I, the world yeah. is full of it. And How it, can we escape it? And uh, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, we've talked about codependency. Oh, my favorite topic. And, uh, you know, and I see it. And uh, I'm more aware of codependency. Uh, now? Now. You know, things that growing up, uh, and, you know, in a church-going household, things that were expected of you uh, and what you were taught, a lot of things we were taught were is codependency. Yeah. Uh, and it's an everyday norm for a good portion of the country. Uh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they have no clue that they're being codependent. So give us an example of what you're saying. Uh, you know... Yeah, you put me on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talk about one we talk about a lot is like music and television. How like we're inundated with message of codependence and music right. and television. Music, yes. Uh, we, we just recently talked about that. How the most popular songs that hit the chart are codependence. I'm going <laughs> to blow myself up with a hand grenade to save you. You know, I mean... And I guess that's a uh, that's that's a codependent that's an example of codependency right there, putting others people's needs before your own. Exactly, that's it. I mean, they tell us that when we get on the airplane, put your mask on first before you put someone else's on, right? That's what a healthy relationship looks like, right? But we get these messages that I'll die without you, I can't breathe without you. Uh, I heard one recently, I don't even remember this, the lyrics were ludicrous, it was just so crazy, something about, um, you know, about not, I don't even know, I'm 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 worthless without you, oh, right, it goes on and on, right, so it's like low self-esteem, poor boundaries, lack of attachment, healthy attachment, all these things, right? We are inundated with that. And so I make sure that I talk about codependence as often as I can. And I'm glad that you brought codependence up because it is, in my opinion, at the root of all addiction, right? And so codependence, in my opinion, is formed out of trauma and poor attachment, meaning poor attachment to our, our caregivers, right? And so that's where where addiction is formed early on in our lives is like we learn to attach poorly, right, to try to get our needs met. And when that's too hard and that's not successful and we're in a lot of pain, we go to the harder things like drugs and alcohol and sex and pornography and all those things. You know, that brings me back to a thought about my brother. And that was the root of his trauma it was trauma and and the fact that he didn't believe that my dad cared about him and loved him Mm. Uh, and you know and and i understand that you know it was me and my dad that was uh, we have a hard relationship and uh he did the best that he did he could do with the tools he had and now you sound like you're quoting me (laughs) (laughs) you know and i'm coming to understand that more and more every day and, you know, I try to reach out to him as best I can because he doesn't know how to reach out to me. Right. And then let go of the outcome. 
Because you don't know, you don't know what that exchange is gonna look like, right? But right. you're you're reaching out for you, correct? Right, and it's not to take care of him. No, yeah, it's it's for me to build a healthy relationship with him, right? And yet maintain my boundaries. Exactly, boundaries to another favorite conversation piece for me, and you know, folks, the conversation that Alan and I are having, this is what we talk about, you know. Uh, I wouldn't say most of the time, but at least 50-50, right? We have these conversations because these conversations are ones that have to be had in relationships because whether it's I'm coming, you know, home to talk about some, you know, dysfunction I'm experiencing as a result of maybe not taking care of myself or Alan's having some experience with a coworker or something like that, we have to be able to talk about uh, boundaries we have to be able to talk about codependence. We have to talk about self-care because these are all the things that we all have to be talking about, right? Yes, totally. And life can get hectic and, uh, you know, we can forget to take care of ourselves. Oh, shit, yeah. Uh, we're trying to take care of everybody else around us. Yeah, and, you know, I'm just not interested in putting other people before me. But, um, and that's not, a, that's a self-care and not selfishness. Correct. Right. And that doesn't mean I don't care. Right. But it's going to I'm going to make sure that I'm okay first before you're okay, Right. And it boils down to, you know, again, I'm going to quote the secret. Uh, You know, you can't take care of number two if you don't take care of number one. Amen. I heard that. I mean, if you're dead, if I'm dead, there's no way I can help you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then and then and it isn't selfishness. Right. And then when you take care of yourself the best of your ability and there's something lacking or you need more, you ask. Totally. Right? You don't demand, you make requests. And that's what uh, you know, that's what a healthy relationship looks like for someone for for all people, I think. Not just people who are, are who are addicts or family members of addicts, for all people. I I agree. You know, it has to be you have to be open and willing to discuss anything and everything. Yeah, uh, I agree. If an issue comes up, at, uh, something that uh, is going to affect both of us, you know, we've got to make that decision together. Right. Exactly. And uh, and you know, and be, first of all, you just have to be willing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be willingness, and so that's one of the things that I think that we can we can definitely see in this conversation that we're having there is willingness on both sides to show up as the best that we can right uh we take care of ourselves so we can show up and take care of the relationship you can't take care of the relationship first and then we're then think about who who you are and what your needs are right yeah uh that leads to dysfunction correct so i'm grateful that you took the time out of our usually uh you know, television uh, full Sunday (laughs) to sit down and chat with me uh, about addiction and what makes someone an addict and family of origin stuff. All difficult stuff to talk about sometimes, but I think it's always good information. I agree. Right. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I love you. I love you too. And thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. 
I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at DJBurr1022 and TheDJBurr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.